Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are grateful that you're joining us. Today's conversation is called Seeing in 2020, Pandemics, Protests, and Police. Enjoy. As we do every week at New Abbey, uh, for those of you who are alive, you're going to find three or four people socially distanced around you, uh, and you are going to answer this question. What have you seen the last few weeks that's changed your perspective of the world? Uh, and then same thing for everyone on live stream. They're going to be kicking you out soon uh, into Zoom groups. Uh, you'll be answering this conversation. I mean, this question again. What have you seen the last few weeks that's changed your perspective of the world? Enjoy. We're continuing our conversations with one another by looking at the Lord's Prayer. And for me, the Lord's Prayer is incredibly important because like so many things that Jesus said, particularly the more famous things that Jesus said, those are the things that we've most normalized, uh, like the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and when we normalize the words of Jesus, we lose the capacity to see that these words were actually revolutionary and they were radical and they were carefully and well-crafted and chosen to incite change and transformation in the world. And so what we want to do is we have a conversation about the Lord's Prayer. We're not talking just theoretically and ideologically. We're talking about the revolution and the radical words that Jesus is saying in the context of all that is taking place in the United States of America right now with Black Lives Matter. That there is a revolution at hand. There are things that have taken place this year where we cannot go back to the normal that we came from. So we want to move today from the things that we've seen to becoming a people of practice. And how do we continue to instill those practices and those rhythms into our lives? And so to do that, we've got to talk about some things. We're going to talk about 2020 vision. Then we're going to talk about Kobe and pandemics and protests and police that has all been happening this year. Then we're going to come back to this image that we've used so many times of a burning bush. And if we can see that the bush has always been burning, then we'll talk about the new normal. Then we need to do some thanks. And if we can talk about thanks, then we can talk about the vantage points that each of us come from. And then obviously, hippos are aggressive, my friends. You see where we're going there. And if we can talk about the fact that hippos are aggressive, then we're going to come back to this point that we talked about before of that we need to blaspheme our gods of our systems. Then we're going to talk about treason and sedition. Then we're going to talk about liberation is baked into the whole thing. Then we're going to have a prayer of disruption. We're going to get uncomfortable. We're going to talk about whiteness, a coat of blue. And I think that's the whole list. I thought there was more, but that's okay. We'll get there. Can you get that done by dinner? Uh, we'll see. We'll find out. It's a nice short list. Be, just buckle up, people. Here we go. I, I can remember being a young pastor even 10 years ago and being at another church and we were doing this series preparing for the year 2020, this 10-year vision. And I'm sure at the time at the church I was at, it was about like a building campaign and growth and services or something along those lines. But 2020 was like this creative way of saying like, we're going to have great vision by then. And even this year, as we started in 2020, everyone's social media is like, this is going to be the greatest year of our life. I mean, it's 2020 and 2020 vision and it's going to be amazing. And then, right, there's already giggles, because we were all there. And then 2020 is, I really do believe, it is the year that we have begun to see. And we see not in the ways that we thought we were going to. We're not seeing because we're comfortable with margaritas next to a pool, and everything is going perfectly. 
We're seeing because the world is being disrupted. We're seeing things that have always been there, but maybe now for some, we have eyes to see what's always been there. For others, it is an acknowledgement of what they've been crying out and saying has always been there. But we are seeing something new with one another. None of us would have ever imagined these corporate events that taking place in our lives. That for so many big parts of human history, there's these moments that happen every five years or ten years that everyone remembers where they were at. Everyone remembers where they were when uh, the wall fell in Germany. Everyone, some of you were not even born until like the late 90s. I'm looking right at you, so you don't, you don't remember that. You've heard and seen pictures of that. Many people remember where they were when Princess Diana died. Other people knew, can name the moment of what was going on when they heard about 9-11. Or the great financial crisis. There are these different moments in life that we hear about, and now we're in a year where there's been event after event after event after event. And right as people keep saying in protest, these are not moments, we're part of a movement where all of these things are happening at once. So we all remember when we heard the news. I remember just leaving here five minutes um, after our Sunday gathering, it ended in seeing that Kobe Bryant had died and experiencing this corporate grief as a city and as a people of too soon. We weren't, we weren't ready for this. He was, he was just getting started. The, the man that he's become, the healing that he is, the ways that he's participating in the world. And then just right after that, it's, we, we saw the news coming, but we were not ready as all of a sudden this pandemic was, was here. And we're shutting things down and everything is changing. And none of you, if you would have written a note to yourself in December, would have even pretended that you, who you were in April would have been real. You'd be like, we're doing what? We're... Locked in our homes? You'd just been like, no, this is, this is our stuff of movies. And then out of the pandemic, I think, created and showed us the inequalities that have always been going on in the world. As white collar and white people can sit at home on Zoom calls, and as blue collar and black and brown people who are essential must be at grocery stores and delivering mail and doing jobs, that the gaps between pay was evident, that black and brown people were dying at disproportionate rates to white people due to the coronavirus, that thing after thing after thing in the pandemic was just highlighting the reality of the inequalities that have always been there. You also create this opportunity where people have time and space to engage and to ask questions and to see maybe in a different way that it felt like the whole world was uncomfortable and in the uncomfortableness of it and the fact that it was not normal that all of a sudden as these police brutalities and as black lives were killed from Ahmaud Arbery to Breonna Taylor to George Floyd, the world began to wake up that the black communities were saying, this has always been going on. And as protests happen, as Black Lives Matters, marches continue to begin, these things have happened in the past, but we all have feeling that something is different in the air. That a domino was pushed over this time. That it's pushing over a hundred other dominoes incredibly quickly. And we're all saying because of what we've experienced in the pandemic and what we're experiencing now is, we're already not going back to normal. 
So why would we ever go back to that normal where black people can be killed by police officers simply because of the color of their skin? Why would we go back to a normal where racism is okay? Why would we go back to a normal where we continue paying people $15 an hour to put their lives on the line for a virus while other people get to sit at home? Why would we go back to normal where the world is polluted with toxins as people in India have seen the Himalayas for the first time in 30 years? There was moment after moment after moment that we've experienced as we've had the opportunity, maybe even luxury, to sit at home and look at social media to see that is not the normal we're going to go back to. And we're seeing the world in a different way. There's this story that we've used so many times at New Abbey that the rabbis say. And the rabbis say it's that when Moses saw the burning bush, it wasn't that the bush started burning. It's that the bush was always burning and Moses finally had eyes to see it. The bush has always been burning. There has been 400 years of systemic racism in the United States of America. And there have been many of us, including myself, who have not had to see it. Who, who does not have to experience it. While there are so many of our brothers and sisters in this world and people that we know who have had to experience, who have experienced every day of their life, whether they want to or not, that the bush was burning and they've been telling people, the bush is burning and we haven't listened. And we ask for forgiveness. And we're saying maybe now is the moment that we're woke, that we're trying to wake up, that we don't want to go back to sleep. We're imperfectly doing it, but there is something in the air that the bush has always been burning and now we have eyes to see. And here's the difference. You don't get a control always in your life when you see the burning bush that's always been in front of you. But you do control this. The moment that you see that the bush is burning, now how will you respond? Now that you're aware of it, now that you're more awoke, now that you've experienced this, how will you continue to respond? How will you continue to respond not only today, not only in these few weeks, but three months from now, six months from now, ten years from now? How will you not just keep educating yourself now? How will you not just keep seeing, but how will you start participating in a radically different system and reality and perspective about how the world actually works? That is incredibly difficult. That will be incredibly difficult for our world. There will be a lot of pain ahead, but that pain is worthwhile. That pain is something that we should embrace, particularly white people of privilege. Embrace the pain because we have benefited from the system. And the system that we have benefited from, we have an opportunity to stand in front and to change that system because that system has not been working for everybody. And so we have eyes to see that the world is changing. We have an opportunity to have a different vision for what's happening in 2020. And so with that, I want to talk about, well, actually, I want to say the prayer. I want to say the prayer in a different way, and as we talk through this prayer of Jesus, I want us to bring us back that this is not a normal prayer. This is a prayer that changed the world. That our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Those are not just simply words or prayers that we say in some rote way that just makes God feel good or us feel good, that they come out of the context of revolution and liberation in new ways, that the prayer itself is a disruption to the system that Jesus lived in, that when Jesus says that prayer, he's saying this prayer in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up onto a mountain to disrupt the systems of his day, particularly in that moment, Jesus is disrupting the religious systems and the political systems of his day by saying this prayer. That Jesus goes on a mountain to remind all of the good Jews of the day that Moses once went to a mountain, Moses once saw God, and Moses once delivered these commandments as a way of being. And now, Jesus will say after this prayer a lot of different times in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, You've heard these good religious values said, and you practiced and did all of the religious things, and the poor were still mistreated. You still hated. You still oppressed. There was still inequity, is what Jesus gets through on the Sermon on the Mount. So you've heard it said, but you haven't practiced a new way of being. You continue to be good religious people while other people die around you. Jesus is offering up a new reality for how to live. And so we need to embrace that this prayer is a disruption. But before I get deeper into the reality of this prayer is disruption, I want to do a few things. First off, I want to thank everybody. Thank you for seeing that the bush is burning. Thank you for educating yourself. Thank you that on Amazon right now, books about white fragility and white privilege are sold out. Thank you for all of the black voices in our lives, for their vulnerability and their honesty, and for letting us know that you do not have to answer all of our questions and educate us. Thank you for letting us know that you have put your bodies on the line too often. It is not your responsibility anymore to change the minds of white people. We need to do our own work. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for every single person, whoever you are, wherever you find yourself, that you've been protesting. Whether you're physically at protests and standing in solidarity, or whether you're at home and posting different things on social media, that you're changing the rhythms about how you do your life. Thank you for doing your part. Thank you for putting one foot in front of the other. It's an acknowledgement of graciousness that thank you that you're doing something. Have you arrived? No but you're going to keep moving forward because you're already putting in patterns and habits and rhythms into your life that will change the world. And the beauty of it is that we're not doing it alone, that we're going to keep putting in these new rhythms and these new habits and we're going to do it with one another. We're going to keep holding each other accountable. We're going to keep advocating for a better world. These are the things that we're going to participate in. And so thank you. I know, though, that the conversations are also long. For Carissa and I, part of the vantage point that we find ourselves in is that we're parents. Every single person, as you enter this conversation, you're just coming into this conversation from your vantage point. You cannot change that. Whether you're a gay black woman or a straight white man or Latino by this, you're a combination of a lot of things. That's who you are. That's where you are. That's the vantage point that you enter into this conversation. And I say that for this reason. Your vantage point is important. Every vantage point in this conversation is important. 
The goal that we have here is for the healing of the world. And we're doing that in this moment by acknowledging that black lives matter. And so your voice from your vantage point acknowledging that is important to the movement, is important to radical transformation and change. For Carissa and I, as white parents, as a heterosexual couple, we have a vantage point that our kids live into. And we have been people who, I mean, Chris was showing a post from four years ago at a Black Lives Matter event in Cadence and Diapers um, here in Pasadena, that it's something that we choose to be allies and advocates for. And even in that, we are horrified by the reality of there's way more work to do. Places that we've been implicit. And with our children, it's the realization that my kids look extremely white. My, two of my kids are blonde hair, blue eyes, white kids. And they go through the world in a way that other kids don't have to. And at nighttime and at the dinner table, we usually have conversations and prayers about honest things that are going on in the world. So I remember the first night that we're talking about George Floyd, Caden is asking these curious questions about, well, who's George Floyd and, 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 and why would a police officer kill him? That it doesn't match his experience in the world. That his experience in the world is that when he sees a police officer, he gets a sticker. That, that conversation continues on for days and that Caden begins to see the conversation in a different way and recognize that there are police officers who don't treat black people well, that he names his black friends at school, he names different people of color, he names and recognizes the diversity that is around him and with Carissa he wants to make a Black Lives Matter sign that he can put on our front window for our neighbors to see. That's his way, his little six-year-old way of saying, I'm beginning to see something here. That for Bella, in one of the protests we went to this week, we're in our car. It's one of these drive-up drive protests. And my little three-year-old girl just driving through this protest with her just fist up. And she doesn't know, but she's being exposed to something that's saying there are real inequities and injustices in this world, and she doesn't know that you're a white woman who has a part to play in this, but we're trying to create new realities from our vantage point. That Bryce, my middle five-year-old, that we're at a table talking one night, and he doesn't quite understand why some police officers have killed black people, but we're trying to honestly talk with him about it. And he says, so what I want to do is I want to go fight those police officers. And I said, well, why? Explain this to me. He said, well... Hippos are aggressive, so I want to be aggressive and go fight these police officers. And it's this moment of, there's a lot of conversations to go. This is a five-year-old who doesn't fully understand it, of course. And then it's another conversation where we get to talk about a theme that we've talked about every day of our kids' lives. What's the biggest thing in the world? What's bigger than the ocean? What's bigger than the universe? What's bigger than the stars? And the answer is love. You don't have to go be aggressive, but how do you fight this reality with love? How do you change your perspective? The point is, from my three, five, and six-year-old, they have a vantage point, and you have a vantage point, and we all need to participate in that in some real way. Then when we say this prayer every day, when we're saying, our Father, our Mother, our God, what we're saying is that this God really is for everybody. This God is not exclusive to any group. That this God wants a radically different reality for humanity. And one of the ways that we blaspheme the gods of our culture, right, is uh, one of the ways that we kind of topple these gods is by blaspheming them. And I've talked about this idea before, that if money is your god, live generously. That's how you will blaspheme and topple that god. If you are your god, make fun of yourself a little bit. 
That's how you will blaspheme, right, and topple that you are the God of yourself. If whiteness is your God, then you protest that thing. You let this God know you no longer run the world. If power is your God, you blaspheme it by speaking out. And that each of us has a choice to speak out against the gods of our culture that are, that are causing pain, oppression, and exclusion. And we do that from our vantage point. We choose that incredibly carefully. We know that when Jesus says our, that Jesus is including everybody in it. That when Jesus is talking about a kingdom come, would your kingdom come and your will be done, those words are treason and sedition. Those are not comfortable, normal words. Jesus is saying those words in a culture where there is already a king, there is already a Caesar, and Caesar does not share power with anybody. Jesus' radical words are that the systems of Caesar are not working for everybody. So we're asking for a different kingdom to come, a different will to be done on this earth, not one that embraces the powerful ways of Caesar, not one that just continues to implicitly or complicitly validate whiteness, but one that breaks that reality. That's what Jesus is asking for. Jesus is not saying some milquetoast words. Jesus is saying radical revolutionary words that should change the world. Jesus is inviting us into this. Jesus' prayer is a disruption. It is a disruption to the norms that we live in. And we all have a part to play in it. I find myself as a straight white man who lives in powerful settings that a lot of other straight white men who are pretty powerful called me a bunch this week. It's from my vantage point. And every single one with good intentions. And their intentions are the realization that they're uncomfortable and they don't know what to do. And part of the conversation that I get to have with them is uncomfortability is a great starting point. You've never had to be uncomfortable before. There are other people in this world who start from a lot of other vantage points and all they've known is uncomfortability. That you sitting in this, that you acknowledging something different is okay. Our whole system, our whole culture of normalcy is trying to tell everyone what you want is to be comfortable. We're having eyes to see in 2020 because we are uncomfortable. And so my challenge to this, particularly to our white community, including myself, is if you feel uncomfortable right now, praise God. Sit there. Embrace that. Ask questions about your uncomfortability. Do work. Do all of the external work that you need to do to educate yourself. Go to a therapist. Have conversations with other people. Don't put all this pressure on the black community. Go talk with other people who are white. Go, there's, we live in 2020. You have an endless amount of resources to tap to continue to grow and transform and to heal yourself. But uncomfortability is okay. And it is when we are able to live into our uncomfortability that we'll be able to talk about the fact that the culture we live in is one that comes from whiteness. And for all of the white people out there, including myself, let me say this. This is not a conversation trying to say that white people are bad. This is a conversation that is trying to say that there is a system of whiteness that is oppressive. And there can be good people in systems, in bad systems, that lead them to do bad things. You are acknowledging your vantage point and however you're made in the world, but you're also acknowledging that from that vantage point, the whiteness system that we're a part of does not work for the most of the world. 
It works for a very specific minority group of white people, and that group is powerful. And that group is not motivated, right, to want to let that go. Just like any powerful group is never motivated to let that go. But we are awake in this moment in a different way. So how will we challenge systems of whiteness? How has that whiteness affected government? How has that whiteness affected church? How has that whiteness affected so many different systems that are in our culture? And we're committed to doing that work with one another. And it starts by owning our uncomfortability in it. That conversation moves over to a code of blue. We're not saying that every police officer is somehow inherently bad. What we're saying is that policing systems are inherently racist. They were created as racial systems to capture black slaves who left, right, um, enslavement. That is where policing started in the United States of America. It was to protect, in the 1700s and 1800s, white property. Are there good people who are police officers? Certainly, but the system itself even allows for good people to do bad things, which should challenge you in the systems that we see in this world. It should challenge us to be asking these bigger questions that are going on right now as people are talking about defunding the police and defunding one of the biggest systems that's in our country, which is tied to our military industrial complex, which is tied to how we incarcerate people that there's a lot of money that is made not in peace, but in violence, in selling weapons, in inciting violence, in imprisoning people. It is a trillion dollar a year economy in which we keep going all the time, and the United States of America is the biggest propagator of that violence in the world. From our military industrial complex to the way that we police, to the way that the military industrial complex sells weapons to police departments. By the way, side fact, after 9-11, go Google this on your own and do the research about how many billions of dollars of weapons the military sold to police forces, to police forces that did not need to be weaponized. Go read stories about small communities in Wisconsin and Maine that got all of these military vehicles when they had zero violent crimes for 10 years, and they didn't have the money to afford it, so the government would give them the money to pay for these military equipment so that they can have equipment that they didn't need. What happens when police roll in, not with empathy, care, compassion, and education, but in tanks? How do people respond? There's a complex system out there. What we're saying is maybe even reform won't work for that. Maybe we need to abolish it, which are radical words. But here's the problem with some reform. When you look at all of the reform statements and you look at the statistics that are provided and they're like, this will greatly reduce violence of police officers on black people by 72%. There's only one number that matters. It reduces 100% of the violence. There is no percentage that is acceptable if people continue to die because of the color of their skin. If reform means that anybody could die on any day, it's not about reducing that number, it's about eradicating that number. And you might say, Corey, this sounds like radical words. You're challenging the military-industrial complex and policing. All I've known of policing, maybe policing is good. Yeah, they're radical words. And we're talking about a radical God. We're talking about a God who is so radical that Jesus would be executed by the state only to raise again, to challenge the authority and power of that state. That is a radical, radical narrative that you're somehow listening or sitting here that you believe in. If you believe in that, then you can believe in a world where we don't militarize the police. 
You can believe in a world where we put money in the hands of educators, social workers, right, therapists, other community support advocate groups, where we put money back into marginalized communities, specifically black communities, that we built this country off of. Is it radical? Of course it is. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you should already be radical. And I'm sorry for all of the ways that I've normalized the story of Jesus. I don't want to normalize it. Normal is not okay. And so the code of blue doesn't work. Whiteness doesn't work. That we should live into our own uncomfortability. That we need to do your own research on the difference between reform and abolishing something. Do your research on the things that you can defund and divest from in our culture. I believe that budgets in this world are moral contracts. Your family's budget, our city's budget, our country's budget is a moral contract. It is unexcusable that our country spends over 50% of its discretionary spending on the military. It is unexcusable that the number one thing that we pay for in the city of Los Angeles is policing. We can do put our money in other places. What would that look like? How would that change things? Just like where you spend your money represents your values, where our tax dollars go should also represent a moral budget that we're agreeing to. And if we don't like that moral budget, not only should we protest, but we should get engaged in local politics. We should vote for people who are going to change these systems that are oppressing other people. It's radical, I know. It's going to take years, if not decades, to work out, but it's only going to happen if we say that the normal that we've been participating in is not okay. I have seen the bush burning, and I'm never going back. My life has been changed, and it is unacceptable. That is what we're participating in. And so I end with this. I'm not promoting some new kind of orthodoxy, which is a fancy way of correct thinking. Evangelicalism got away with a lot of really horrible things in the last two centuries because it was so convinced that we need to change how people believe in things that if you said the right words and the right creeds and showed up to church enough times and played the good Christian part, that somehow God was happy. But we did that despite incarcerating black and brown people at an astronomic rate. We did that in spite of the fact that there's 60,000 people tonight in Los Angeles County who will sleep on the streets. We did that in spite of the fact, right, that we marginalized all kinds of other groups of people of color. We did that in spite of the fact that we told women in certain evangelical contexts that they didn't have a voice, that their voices weren't somehow equal to men. We do that in spite, right, of the fact that the LGBTQ community was told that they're basically not human and that somehow that they're abhorrent to God. The evangelical community has been telling people what to believe, but not engaging in practices that actually change and transform the world, which is an abuse of power and whiteness. And we are going to be committed in a space like this to continue to challenge those things with correct practices. So we're never going to play church. We're going to keep having conversations. We're going to keep educating ourselves. We're going to protest. We're going to allow some people not to have to share because they don't need to anymore. They get a rest. We're going to ask other people to speak up because they've been living in a system of power and whiteness that's benefited them. We're going to have challenging conversations about the biggest systems in our country, like the military-industrial complex and policing and the judicial system, which do not benefit most Americans if you are not white. We are going to keep challenging these things when people say, oh, why are you getting political? Because Jesus was political. He's inciting a prayer that challenged the kingdom of his day that was not a theoretical kingdom. That was a kingdom that killed him and put him on a cross. 
I'm fired up. And I think like many of you, I'm fired up because I'm sad. This is not an okay world to continue to live into. There are sprouts of change. May we continue to tend to them, to water them, to cultivate them, to do the real work that new oaks will be birthed in this world, that new systems will be created that work for everybody, that will honor and acknowledge the pain of black lives, that will dismantle whiteness. This is the work that we're committed to doing together. Would you get into your groups and ask, have this conversation with one another? What practices will you continue this week that bring about change? Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.